Hey, you're listening to Sound On Sight, the official podcast of soundonsight.org. This week, episode 330, myself, Simon Howell, Mr. Ricky D, and Julian Carrington will be discussing the new film by Craig Zobel, one of the few standouts from this year's Sundance, and uh, apparently a film that's been ruffling quite a few feathers. It's called Compliance. After that, we will be discussing the film that, that topped the sight and sound uh, filmmakers half of the uh, top 100 films of all time. That's Yasushiro Ozu's Tokyo Story. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy yourself. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Trees. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Hey, you're listening to Sound on Sight. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined via the magic of the interwebs by Mr. Ricky D. Hey, everybody. And Mr. Julian Carrington. How's it going, all? This is Sound on Sight, and um, we you know we've we've been having a hard time programming the show because, um, you know, we always feel like we need to cover mainstream films, but then so few have come out that have seemed interesting, and so we get guilty and. It's it's a whole thing that we go through. So what I what I believe the plan is this week we're um talking about Craig Zobel's compliance, which is sort of starting to go um I guess wide ish for an for an indie release. Um just before we I'm gonna about to play the uh or, or a clip rather from Craig Zobel's compliance. I feel the need to clarify before we do anything about this film. You know, it's based very closely on a true story. It's sort of essentially a true crime film. So it feels weird to put a spoiler warning on our review, but it is sort of vaguely designed as a psychological thriller, which with twists and turns, etc. So I feel the need to explain that we we are going to be going through the film beat for beat uh, because it's sort of necessary to talk about the substance of those you know twists and turns, which also actually happened. So I I feel the you know it's weird to put a spoiler warning on essentially life, but you know. That's what I have to do. This is the weird intersection of film sometimes. So anyway, uh, that's really enough preamble. Uh, let's hear a clip from Craig Zabel's Compliance. Y'all know what Friday nights are like. We've got to be by the book tonight. You don't have a customer? I want you to clean, clean, clean. Let's get to work. This is Officer Daniels with the police department. I have a woman here saying one of your employees took money out of her purse. You have a young lady who works at the register, about 19 years old, blonde. Becky, come with me. 
I swear, I didn't take anything. I don't know what's going on here. I'm just trying to do my job. Calm down for me, okay? You don't realize what kind of trouble you're in. We need to find the money, but I'll need your help till I can get down there. We really have two choices here. He's saying he will have to take you to jail. Or what we could do is have you strip search her right now. I could strip search you here. What? No. No. Is this okay to be doing? Oh, yeah, of course. You're making a really difficult situation run very smoothly. I'm just trying to do my job. I didn't do anything. I'm gonna need you to address me as sir, understand? Yeah. Listen to me. Sir! This behavior will not be tolerated. What the hell is he doing back there? I did a bad thing. That man's asking me to do things that ain't right. Help me, please. Stop talking. You're almost like a real cop. I'll do everything, you know, that you need. That was a clip from a new film called Compliance, written and directed by Craig Zobel. I believe it is a first feature. No. No. Sophomore feature. Sophomore feature. All yes, right. sir. Fine. It's, it's a sophomore feature. So uh, this is, as I mentioned before, sort of a true crime film uh, of a sort, although the crime itself is rather unusual. Uh, this is about a uh, young... Uh, employee at a fast food at a is it ever actually established which fast food chain it is in the film it's an invented fast food chain it's called chick witch chick right which i thought actually maybe was real but that's just you know uh, that just shows you how little familiarity i have with american fast food chains yeah i don't i don't imagine that he could have gotten anybody to sign off on allowing him to use a real hey, uh, fast food restaurant killer joe home. had kfc well it was kentucky it was it was kentucky fried sea or that's kentucky. true they never actually say you know the trademarked names the real life story took place at mcdonald's in mount washington kentucky and uh so this is basically his version and yeah it's a fictional a fast food restaurant called Chickwitch, and it's written on their uh, cap simon so in this movie it, it actually takes place in ohio if i'm not mistaken Right, and it, although it's all, uh, it should also be clarified that the the incident is just one of many, many similar reported incidents. He just happened to choose this particular one. So essentially, it, essentially, what occurred is this uh, this man called into this uh, to this restaurant and uh, posed as a police officer, which you uh, realize. I mean, you should realize it right away, but you realize it quite explicitly midway through the film when you see him visually uh, on the phone clearly not a police officer i i'm just trying to do a synopsis here which is it's not the easiest thing to synopsize a true thing yes it's essentially the 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 most horrible set of prank calls in human history um as as far as i know the uh the girl in question is played by dreama walker who i don't think i've seen in anything else except for a mediocre television sitcom called don't trust the bee in apartment 23 as abc must apparently call it uh, it's worth noting, though, that the uh, manager of the of the restaurant who uh, ends up having to do most of the dirty work of this uh, on the other end of this horrible prank call is played by Ann Dowd. Uh, so, Julian, 
the only thing that I really heard about this film before seeing it is was a that it was deeply unpleasant, uh, b based on true events, and c would be likely to cause uh, mass walkouts. Did did you experience anything like that? Uh, no, I mean I saw it this afternoon and uh, I didn't notice anybody walking out of the theater. Uh, I did mention actually earlier, maybe that's to do with the fact that it was screened at the Lightbox here in Toronto, which is already, um, you're talking about an audience that's, you know, seeking out this film specifically because probably they've, you know, heard of it. They know more or less what they're getting into as opposed to if it was at a mainstream cinema, you might have had more people that just, you know, walked in because, hey, they came out to see a movie and that's what they ended up seeing. Um, but no, my audience was, um, was, was, pretty riveted throughout seemingly. Um, and as I walked out, there were already uh, passionate discussions uh, sort of breaking out among the patrons who were still sitting and, and hanging around. Uh, it's, it's definitely a film that inspires conversation, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what was your experience? Um, you know, I didn't have any walkouts, but I did have, and I, I'm sure this, I actually think this is going to be a more common experience than walkouts is I had two women sitting directly behind me who were just going, no, don't do that. And, you know, right. just providing a run, a running commentary on, right. on, and uh, which I actually find far more annoying than walkouts. <laughs> um, so yeah, expect, uh, expect an unintentional commentary track on your viewing of compliance. Mm-hmm. That's strange. Cause, uh, at my screening, I went last night and it was all senior citizens and, um, yeah, it was a pretty good uh, audience. Nobody walked out. Nobody really like reacted to the film in any negative way. I mean, there there was like a reaction like where, where people like would squirm or scream or whatnot, but that just like enhanced the uh, the viewing experience. Right. So Rick, uh, it, sort of, I'm I'm trying to think of a, a good way to jumpstart critical discussion of the film, and I I, I guess the one that uh, the question that occurred to me after walking out of the theater was I was wondering if Zobel's idea to treat this you know true event as sort of the uh, you know, to, to dramatize it rather than make a documentary about uh, about the events. I, I, I was wondering if if, the, if that was the best option and what, what it might have looked like as a documentary. Do, would you have preferred a, a documentary approach or were you happy with this sort of dramatized approach? I was extremely happy with his uh, decision. Um, it kind of has sort of like a documentary feel to it in terms of like the way it's shot, especially towards the end of the film. Um, and especially, I would say, like, once... The, the actual police officers arrive, like the true real police officers arrive and afterwards they had like sort of like a, a, t- a talking head interview and, and, um, and whatnot. Um, I, I guess my, my main problem with the film is like, see, here's the thing. Cause most of the time when a movie says it's based on a true story in like many cases, it's like a marketing ploy. Right. And usually like only 4% of the story is true because I think there's a certain amount of percentage of the story that has to be true for you to be able to uh, legally get away with putting based on a true event type thing on your movie on the marketing of a film right like for example um i always bring this up as an example um psycho silence of the lambs and texas chainsaw massacre are all based on true events and it's all based on the same guy ed gein right but those three movies are completely different so the point is they just have to take like four percent of the actual true story in order to get away with putting that like you know, based on a true story title card type thing on it. Anyways, so unlike many films that are quote unquote based on true stories, this one actually follows closely to the actual events. And 
I think like if you didn't get the disclaimer, viewers would be inclined towards eye rolling. Like I think I would have just like walked out of the theater because it was really hard to buy into like the actions and reactions of the characters in this movie and the sort of stuff that they decided to, to do. Right. Uh, but you know, truth can be stranger than fiction. And in this case it was. So I don't know. I, I think the movie was fantastic up until, like I said, up until you actually cut away to the, um, to the, the actual man making the, the prank phone calls from his house. I don't know why the director made that decision where he chose to cut away from the fast food restaurant to this guy making the phone calls from his house. But to me, that cut away from the tension. I liked the idea of the whole thing being like centered around the fast food joint. And I loved the way it was like shot, like the camera movement, the blocking, the close-ups of like the French fries and a burger is just like sizzling on the grill. Um, you know, the random shots of like customers coming and going so they can show like how busy this fast food joint is, which kind of played into like the plausibility of the whole thing because like you know when you're when you when you're like working in that sort of environment it's so go 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 fast paced and you're under a lot of stress and it's like the busiest night of the year people are making decisions on the fly and that that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to make the right decisions but like i said then he cuts away and that's when the movie lost me you know this is one of those films that i i came out of it impressed with certain aspects and and doubtful of certain others but now the more that really the more i think about it you know i've had maybe 48 somewhere between 36, 48 hours to think about it. And it, it's sort of been shrinking in my head. I, I, I find myself less and less impressed with it the more I think about it. I, I think uh, there's a real problem with the whole inspired by true events thing. And it felt to me almost like Zobel used, the, you know, he opens it with the biggest letters possible, inspired by true events, taking up the entire screen. Um and I, it almost felt like he used that as carte blanche to make to render the events in the most unpleasant fashion possible. Without and because he had the the hook of true events, he didn't have to worry about making it believable. This is which is a, a strange thing to say since you know it did happen. Um, but I didn't necessarily buy the way it was presented uh, either because. Um, that there, there's this whole opening 15 minutes where, you know, you, you just sort of get to see the employees hang out and uh, spend some time with the manager and her fiance, et cetera, et cetera. And all that dialogue felt very schematic to me. Like you, you, you know, you find out that the manager has this resentment of this young, attractive employee and, you know, her relationship with, with her fiance, blah, blah, blah. And it seems like it's all very, it's setting up things for later in a very ABC kind of way, which felt very false to me. Uh, I had a difficult time with his many cutaways to, you know, greasy sinks and uh, and dingy um, deep fryer baskets just underlining the unpleasantness too much. Um, the cutaways to the guy, as you already mentioned, um, especially the way he grins and um, and is just generally horrible <laughs> throughout the whole film was just was laying it on just a little bit too thick. So, yes. You know, like when he starts cutting away to the man. It feels like a Joel Schumacher film at that point. Like I'm thinking something yeah, like uh, yeah. Bone like Truth. Yeah, but but I mean, have you guys ever heard of Stanley Milgram's like social experiments? Well, I was yeah. just going to bring that up actually. Okay, um, well then I'll let Julian talk about it. Yeah, I mean, well clearly you have then Ricky and, and Simon. Have you have you heard of it as well? Or I think so, but yeah, but, enla try, but enlighten me maybe. Sure. Okay. Um, the original one, at least, was a psychology experiment um, where uh, volunteers were requested to 
participate in what they thought was a learning study, a study of memory. Um, and what they thought was happening was they were going to administer a uh, test to another volunteer. Uh, in fact, um, they thought that there was an equal likelihood that they would either be the examiner or the examinee, uh, when in fact the examinee was a confederate of the uh, person conducting the experiment and all of the volunteers in fact ended up being the teachers as the, the role was called. And so the pretense of this experiment was that they would be um, asking the learner to memorize a series of, of words, uh, word pairings, and that whenever the uh, learner guessed incorrectly or recalled the word pairings incorrectly, uh, they would administer an electric shock to the uh, learner. And um, the way that the experiment was set up, the volunteer initially would receive a sample shock so that they could uh, you know, feel what the minimum voltage uh, felt like. Um, and then uh, as the experiment proceeded, with each incorrect answer, the uh, teacher would administer a, a higher degree of shock. And these were all laid out on this impressive looking machine um, and labeled uh, by voltage until um, at, at the far end of the machine, there was just an ominous sort of like double X and all of the uh, voltage levels were um, annotated with descriptors, you know, like severe shock, extreme shock, uh, dangerous shock, that sort of thing. And uh, the entire time, a white-coated um, sort of professor uh, supervised the teacher and would insist that the teacher would uh, go on, even when the learner was you know, protesting that they no longer wanted to participate in the experiments because the shocks were getting too painful. Now, the learner's responses were actually recorded on a tape, so everybody heard the same exact cries of pain, everybody heard the same uh, protests at the exact same shock levels. And what the test was actually, what the experiment was actually designed to do was see how far ordinary volunteers would go in administering these shocks, uh, potentially fatal shocks, in fact, because one wrinkle of the experiment was that uh, the learner uh, mentioned that he had a heart condition. So uh, here you've got a person who's you know, being shocked, he's saying he doesn't want to participate, and then at a certain level of shock, he actually just st stops responding. And uh, silence was considered a wrong answer. So even after this guy fell silent, um, the uh, professor who was administering the experiment would, would tell the volunteers, you must continue. Um, and although I don't have, I don't have the statistics at hand, it was well over, it was something like two thirds of participants, uh, actually administered something like the full level of shock. So ostensibly, uh, for all these people knew they may well have killed this guy, um, because he fell silent and they continued to shock him. So yeah, long yeah. story short, this is basically like clerks by way of Stanley Milgram's like Stanley social Milgram. experiments. <laughs> right. Right. But but the key takeaway from that was just that although we'd like to think that we would know better, the fact is that, you know, two thirds of, of ordinary people, randomly selected people are so disposed to f follow orders, to obey authority, that they will carry out those orders to the point of potentially killing somebody. Those people were randomly selected, whereas in this movie, uh, it seems like they don't they don't have like a higher education. I mean, they work at a fast food restaurant. Uh, but even with this experiment, like there were some extremely bright people that would still, you know, 
fall victim to performing these experiments and going a little too far. So, right. Yeah. Um, in fact, I would say not even, not even just that these people were not that well educated, but I think when you look at the real life uh, case that this film is, is, is built on. And I, I think this is one of those films where it is very hard to separate. Uh, I think I haven't really given my general impressions of the film yet. So why don't I just do that now? Um, I thought that it was very, very effective, but I don't know how much credit I give to Zobel because I think that what was really effective about this film was that was everything that he could have gleaned from sort of the actual, you know, like trial transcripts and everything that was on record as having happened. I think whenever he sort of deviates, um, as you guys were saying, you know, to, to show us the guy on the other end of the phone, uh, who, by the way, was never convicted. So we never actually, we don't have a factual record of what this guy uh, said and did or, or who he was, um, you know, his family life, his job and things like that. Uh, or as, as you were saying, Simon, um, sort of the cutaways to the, uh, the greasy uh, fry pans and things like that. I think that all of those elements, I don't know that, that I thought they were as effective, but I think that the core of, of what you see in this film, sort of the step-by-step, um, the way in which this guy is able to manipulate the situation and gradually escalate his demands um, and, and get the level of obedience that he's able to get. I thought this film was very, very effective at showing a plausible, uh, again, uh, surprisingly so, because your instinct as a, as a viewer is to sort of smack your forehead and think like, how could anybody go through with this? But knowing what we know about sort of the human predisposition to obey authority figures, I thought that this film actually uh, did a good job of conveying uh, just the sorts of little techniques, um, the, the language that he might have used, the way in which we see the manager begin to adopt some of his language. You know, when he calls up, uh, he accuses this employee of having stolen something. And initially the, the manager is, you know, she'll say uh, she's accused of this or they're saying she stole something. Whereas, you know, towards the middle of the film, there's no longer any question of that in the manager's mind. She just says, Becky stole. Or uh, Zobel makes a point of having his caller say that ultimately I'm, I'm the police officer here, which of course he's not, but his claim is that he's a police officer and he will take the ultimate rap so you see ways in which he might have um, allowed the manager to kind of displace her own sense of, of agency and, and, and guilt onto him uh, so that she can just obey him without question. Uh, I thought things like that were, were pretty effective. I'm in, I'm in agreement with you, Julian, because I do think it's plausible and I do think that it's felt very realistic. Um, for example, at the opening of the movie, we have, uh, I believe the opening shot is when the manager um, she gets the, the truck delivery of the bacon. The truck driver just totally walks all over her, and she doesn't even know how to respond. Like she doesn't know how to really like stand for her um, for herself. You know what I mean? How to defend herself? She lets people mm -hmm. walk all over her. You see that throughout the restaurant. Her her employees clearly don't really respect her, or maybe it's not that they don't respect her, but they kind of like also walk all over her. They kind of, they're kind of like smirking and laughing during like the staff meeting. And I like the little touches that we get just to kind of get to know a little bit about the characters before we dive into the story. And you know what's weird is a lot of people define this as a drama. And to me, this is like an everyday horror. And I like the first, say, like 40 minutes of the film, the way it steadily, slowly builds to like the, the climax. And I like this sort of like psychological horror movie that just creeps up on you. And it's really uncomfortable and really unspeakable for the first 40 minutes because 
there's like this mystery to it. Like you, you know that the caller is uh, is not really a cop. You know it's like a prank call, but you don't know where the movie's going. And I didn't know about the actual true events, right? So I was just assuming that it was going to turn into some kind of like heist film or some kind of like invasion film. Like they somehow they like invade the fast food restaurant. I wasn't sure where it was going, but at one point, you know, so it's uncomfortable. It's extremely difficult to watch, and it becomes a little bit more devastating. You know, every frame. Um, but anyways, at one point, like I said, when we cut to the actual man, I felt like it just totally like took away any of the tension away from the film. And like, I really did not need to see the man sitting in his home, like making a sandwich. Uh, if you know what I mean? Like, seriously, like that was the biggest misstep in this film, because even like Julian said, even if you sit there and you're smacking your forehead, wondering like why these people are making these these decisions, a it's based on a true story. And how many times have you watched a horror film and you're like, why are you going upstairs? Why aren't you walking outside? Why don't you run away? I mean, that's the whole basis of like most slasher films. Like you, you keep on screaming at the film and questioning the characters, decisions and motivations and reactions and whatnot. So I didn't have a problem with that. I just had a problem with his decision to cut away to um, <clears throat> the main character. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of people say that there was like a major flaw in the film. Also, in terms of like um, when Sandra, the, the store manager, when her like boyfriend shows up and he's he's uh, asked to come and stand guard of Becky. Right. And a lot of people say that doesn't ring true. Or at least that's what happened in my screen. And like a lot of people were complaining about that. But yeah, I yeah. do like the fact that they at least acknowledged that he was intoxicated like he was drunk and uh, that kind of helped in me sort of believing that it can lead to like right. the rape sequence um, uh, yeah sorry if i could just add something that that is actually the one area of the film where i think that was zobel's biggest challenge um and i don't know that i thought it was as effective as the other stuff because that's the point um in this incident where the caller, I mean, I think from the outset, if you have any conception of what a legitimate police officer would ever ask anybody to do, I think from the outset, you know, something is gravely amiss. But uh, there's a point at which he departs so profoundly from police procedure. And you've got the boyfriend, the fiance, uh, who's willing to go along with it. And I think Although, yes, we know that this was based on a true event. And in fact, that that's exactly what happened was the manager's fiance became involved. And that's when the most serious uh, acts were committed. I thought that as an attempt to dramatize that, I thought that Zobel was almost leaning entirely on the fact that, you know, he'd set up this guy was having a beer. And I felt like he almost cheated slightly in that he didn't have to make that the most convincing sequence because he could just use that as a crutch. Like we know that this guy is slightly intoxicated, so we're willing to believe that he could make this leap. But no, but, but, but I, was... I don't, I don't think that the character actually at that point in time bought into the fact that this guy was an actual officer. I think he was right. just in sure. denial or ignoring so, or, or the fact even, that... Or even at the end of the day, what's being instructed is that he's being told to have a sort of an attractive young girl perform a sex act for him. You know, so on some level, you've got the notion that this guy probably was not totally opposed to this, as horrible as that is. But I, I, uh, I, th I think the issue with that sequence, at least for me, is for every horrible thing previous to that in the film that happens, 
you have a scene of Becky and usually dealing with Sandra and going through these stages of being talked through it either by her or by the man on the other end of the phone. You're going through that beat by beat. Here what happens is the, the fiancé shows up and it only really happens in this one instance where we actually just skip over the rationalization and we cut right to the act. And the the difficulty of that, I think, wasn't so much him, you know, acquiescing to the demand because, as you mentioned, you know, he, you know, she's an attractive girl and he's a drunk middle-aged man. So it's that's not a stretch. But the fact that she actually does it is is the part that to me demands some that we see that process that we that we that we that we get the rationalization i get what you're saying i'm not totally disagreeing with you i think that's really hard to swallow but they do they do introduce her character as sort of like this this like young teenage girl who's already sleeping around with multiple dudes Um, and 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 hold on a second um, what i don't think the fact that she's sleeping around with 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 you know the fact that she's a sexually active teenager means that she's predisposed to blowing dudes who ask her to that's not what i'm saying what i'm saying though is that they do play it up that she is like sexually active with more than like one person i mean me like i mean i'm so sorry what I, are you I saying? don't wait hold on a second i don't <laughs> know this character like this is if this is based on an actual real like true event and that character actually let those things happen to her like then that's what I'm saying. Like we could sit here and debate this all night long, but if this is actually what happened, then that's what happened. So clearly, someone did it in real life, right? But what but, I'm saying but, but, is, but what I'm saying is the way the film presents it, the way it skips over the rash that rationalization and that process feels yeah, but cheap. Not, not not really, Simon, because I mean, I didn't see her, the character Becky, even kind of like. Um, you know, mention like or argue the fact that she didn't want to be locked in a room while she's naked with some man that she doesn't know, much less the the other guy that walked in earlier, her, like her coworker. She never protested that she, you know, she's like, I'm naked. I don't feel comfortable being in the, in a in a room alone with another man. It's really, not like I she, seem to remember her saying that a couple of times. I don't remember that. Maybe you're right, but but you know what though? I do want to give credit to the director for one thing because. Um, the worst acts are merely suggested like this movie is not lewd or exploitive in any way and i think that you got to take that as a vital consideration considering it's essentially a a movie about like a a prank phone call but also about a rape so like i like the way that the the director displays extreme caution when it comes to like the line between the observer and the voyeur like his camera doesn't necessarily shine uh, shy away from becky's nudity like we do see her like half nude for like at least two or three shots but it also doesn't linger. And so the character might be completely naked, but he still like affords the actress a degree of privacy. So yeah, that's... but I, I think the thing about his direction that I really disliked, and uh, again, us seeing this guy as part of it, is I, I kind of feel like the movie unintentionally demeans these people to a degree that it doesn't need to. And I, I, when I say that, I mean like it, it feels like it's looking down on these people. In, it, by making their their you know their very banal you know fast food joint place of work just seem as filthy as possible and their jobs as menial as possible and their decisions as ridiculous as possible I don't know just and then the and the, the juxtaposition of all that with this grinning mastermind on the other end well yeah yes and I agree again the grinning mastermind at the other end of the line just like totally killed it when we actually see his face but I mean 
Look, the film raises like these troubling questions about the influence of class and education and our responses to authority, like we've been saying throughout this whole entire podcast. But let's go back to the rape sequence. Like, if we remember correctly, the actual manager walks into the room right before the rape sequence and catches her like fiance sort of in some kind of like awkward position with Becky, who is now completely in the nude. Her apron's completely off, and she chooses to ignore that. And you know what? In actual reality in life, most people would look away. And that's the kind of things that he actually does get right with this movie. Well, um... and, and, they, and they address that at, towards the end of the film. When she has the uh, the interview, I, I don't know what the interview exactly was. I guess it was for some like kind of like cable show. He directly asks her, and he actually shows her the footage, and we get that uncomfortable silence. And then I guess her lawyer uh, tells her like, "You cannot answer that question." And then she starts talking about like um, the humidity and like from. yeah, yeah, where he's from, and exactly. I have to say that the last five minutes of the film were some of the most some of the most effective for me, I... um, which made me wonder. Uh, and I sort of coming back to the thing that I was thinking about from the beginning, what did I, what did I get out of this dramatized version of events that I wouldn't have gotten from a skilled documentarian interviewing people involved in multiple uh, right. instances of these incidents and well, really, I, and really sort of grilling them on their thought process. But, but that, what that's I, an unfair what I would... question though. That's an unfair question because now, now you're criticizing a movie for what they didn't do. And that's the number one rule of film criticism. You criticize the movie that he made, not the movie well, that you although, wanted. I mean, to... If I could answer that even um, for me, again, maybe this was personal to me and perhaps not every viewer feels this way, but what I thought the value of this was um, versus a documentary uh, was that I thought having the kind of prolonged um, effort to make this to, to to ground this in a in a sort of a narrative allows for an immersion in sort of the headspace of all of the participants uh, to the point where you can start to kind of see some of the wheels turning or at least that's that's what I saw but maybe again I'm going in um, with knowledge of the Milgram studies with knowledge that, these events did take place and I, I do remember the news stories when they actually occurred so I think if you go into this film with an awareness of the sorts of uh predispositions that people do have for authority I think that this is actually apart from the one incident that I that I mentioned earlier I think that this is quite a credible rendering of the kind of gradual um acquiescence uh, that somebody might go through. And for me, the virtue of this versus perhaps a documentary, uh, other than a documentary that might have used like really extensive reenactments, um, was that you get you spend enough time with these characters that I could start to see sort of the, the, the process by which um, what this guy was saying um, was was starting to affect their behavior and and getting them to behave in the way that he wanted mm -hmm. that that worked for me largely i i have i have to uh, rick you you were you're right you absolutely can't criticize someone for the film they didn't make that is absolutely a if not the cardinal rule of film uh, film criticism it's one of them but i think it's a different case when you're talking about a filmmaker approaching something that really happened and and, and not just approaching like in an inspired by true events kind of way but literally following an event closely like this, especially one that is dealing with such sort of intense inflammatory material. I think in that case, you know, every filmmaker has a choice. 
yeah, but um, with, let's, with... let's consider this, okay? So he decides to make the movie as it is, as opposed to doing a documentary, right? Fine. But I could give you three reasons why it's probably not such a bad decision. Number one, let's face it, uh, this film would probably be released wide and hit a bigger uh, audience than, say, a documentary. And most of the people um, that would probably, no offense, be like, you know, not the brightest kids on the block and fall victim to these kind of like prank phone calls wouldn't necessarily be watching a documentary. I'm sorry. I don't I don't think the movie works as an educational tool just because, like I said, it, it has this sort of ugly dimension that I, I again, I, I don't think it means to have. Oh, right. Where it sorry. feels like it it's it's judging these people in. in and I mean, obviously, it, I mean, that came out wrong. It feels like it's making value judgments about these people because of their class and their social status. Okay, I'm not going to disagree with that, but th- what I was going to say before is that I think another reason why a documentary wouldn't have been so effective or um, I guess um, – um, God, where is my mind today? Uh, a ch- such a challenge for the director is because what would be the difference between him making a documentary as opposed to just taking like the actual footage, like the news footage from the actual event from when it occurred? You know, And also like I'm not even sure. Like Maybe he wanted to make a documentary, but he couldn't get those people to actually get on camera and tell their stories. Like who knows? But I mean, I'm not disagree. Like the thing is, I feel like we're sort of all on the same page here. I'm not disagreeing with you, but I do, uh, I do really like his style, uh, and I love, the- I love how there was nothing necessarily fancy about the camera work. But yet, when the camera did move, and it when it did move, it moved very slowly and it was very subtle. It just added to the tension, and I just like how it was so straightforward. And I- like I said, at times it did feel documentary like. And another thing I really, really, really loved about this movie was the excellent score that never, ever overpowers the film. It only slowly creeps in, and it's very subtle. It only creeps in when it's needed. Um, it's just uh, such an amazing score. Uh, so that's another thing I really liked about it. Like, I would love to see this guy make a, uh, you know, a straight-up like horror film. I think, I think he's got a lot of talent as a director. You're probably right that there was problems with the narrative. Well, actually, I, I would like to respond to, to Simon's point. Um, just because, again, I don't know how much of this is down to you know, my familiarity, like I, I took psych in university. Um, the Milgram thing is like a core element of your first year class. And it's, it's a big deal. It's one of the most famous experiments out there. Uh, so knowing what you know about that and knowing that this is not a class specific thing necessarily, that this is more facet of human nature, unfortunately, that we are uh, incredibly susceptible to uh, authority figures. Um, and also when you look at the real life incidents and you look at who this guy targeted, he targeted fast food chains and chain grocery stores, and he targeted sort of like middle managers. And I feel like he, I mean, he's a despicable guy, but I think he's a smart guy. And I think in targeting middle managers, he targeted people who he could count on were hyper attuned to this kind of authority uh, situation, because I feel like that is the life of a middle manager. You're all about the chain of command. You're all about hierarchies and so on. So in representing what this film represents, I don't know that Zobel, I didn't read it as him passing judgment on these particular people. I think it's just the facts of this situation are kind of unfortunately it is it is probably people who aren't incredibly well educated but there's a difference between presenting the facts of the situation and then making your cinematographer make everything look as dingy and unpleasant as possible right i mean i i would say that i didn't actually get that impression but the one the one time i i did get that was when 
uh, we do get the most extreme sex act. And that's when, as Simon or as uh, Ricky was actually saying, you know, it, it cuts away from that. And that's when we get like the sink full of, you know, soapy water and the fryer. And I, I, I felt like it was more to accent that one moment of kind of extreme unpleasantness. But uh, maybe I was missing that he was doing it throughout. I, I personally didn't actually notice it through. Fair throughout. I, I do have one. I do have one thing I want to absolutely praise Zobel and the film for, which is uh, Anne Dowd, who mm. is fantastic in this film. Mm. I actually think the whole cast is great, especially for a cast of like non-professional actors. Or, oh, well, that's not sorry, true. Sorry, I wouldn't say non-professional actors, unknown actors. But uh, I'm, I'm in agreement with Julian. I don't think he was at all judgmental. I mean, and if you look at all the characters in the film, they didn't all necessarily make the wrong choice. I mean, the last man that walks in, he clearly walks out of the room. He's like, this is wrong. I'm not yeah. doing this. And then that's when they started inspecting the whole situation. And they realized that this is a prank phone call. And also the, the, the younger gentleman, I forget his name. Kevin, I, mean, I think is the character's name. Yeah, Kevin bit. goes into the room. He's in there for a very short period of time. He comes out and he tries his best to try to convince everyone to like try to help Becky out. But he's still, like, in the dark. Like, he only knows so much. Like, he might know enough to suspect that there's something wrong and to, like, show concern. But he still does not know exactly what's been happening for the past hour or two. Well, well he, was the most, he, he was the most interesting wrinkle to me because if his reaction isn't, this guy is clearly not a cop. His reaction is just, man, cops are terrible. Right. What a fucked up cop. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, again, I wonder if that is also a product of how many movies we watch, because I think corrupt cops are, uh, you know, something that we see a lot of in cinema. Um, and, and, and when you actually hear about some of the other incidents that this caller was able to um, get away with, uh, he was able to convince people that, you know, it was for a sting operation and things like that. And I think he was actually even playing on people's notions of cops that they've got from entertainment. And, and one thing that I would say about this film is, uh, uh, Ricky, you say it's a cautionary tale. I think it is a cautionary tale in a lot of ways for people to at least walk out of the cinema and go and get acquainted with their rights. I don't, I don't think that, you know, this is likely to happen. I think this is a one-off scenario. This was a, you know, one particular guy getting his kicks in a very sick way. But what it did drive home was how little your average person knows what their rights are in a situation like that. You know, I think for all the condemnation of uh, the, the the middle manager and, and, you know, not even necessarily condemnation because I we can understand how these things happen, unfortunately. It was the victim that I was sort of most aghast at because, you know, she even has the option at one point to like go down to the police station. And, you know, if that was me, I would have been like, fuck yeah, take me down because, you know, prove. If you're, if you're accusing me of something, please prove it. But you know, I can see people not knowing their rights. And I think, if anything, this film is going to leave leave you uh, having a discussion as to, you know, what you would do in a similar situation. And if it leads to people sort of recognizing that they have uh, rights in situations like that, then that's that can only be a benefit. But I think also drawing attention to, again, if, if, you, if you don't know about the Milgram study, I think that this is sort of a good backdoor into having that conversation about what it is that people are, uh, capable of doing under the pretext of just following orders. Yeah, but and then just on a closing note, I mean, the whole idea of like fear of authority and just like fear of like the cops, like even sometimes when people do know their basic rights, they're still inclined to fear cops because 
as they are the law, and they just feel that their word will overpower their word in the courtroom. And so right. they're sort of inclined to kind of do whatever the cop says, you know, because they're just hoping to get it over with. It's all about getting it over with. I want to move on with my life. And I think that's essentially what the manager of this movie was trying to do. Like, she just wanted the whole situation to be, you know, to be over and done with and forgotten and move on with her life. I mean, it wasn't her stripping nude. And I'm sorry, most people in that situation, like, sadly, would have done the same thing. <laughs> so 70 cases until they caught the guy, right? It's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Anyhow, I, I I highly recommend the movie because even if you come out and you don't necessarily like the movie, you're sure as hell going to have one great dinner conversation about it. Hopefully at a fast food restaurant. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. Actually, that was another thing I was thinking of opening with, which, which is that I, I didn't like the movie, or at least there was a lot about it that I didn't like, but I think it's one of those movies that serious filmgoers will want to see um, and should see for that reason and others. And I, and I think it... At least for me, I'll be thinking for a long time about what, if I were in that filmmaker's position, what I would have done with that same material, with that same subject matter, and how I would have done it differently. And if it would have helped or not, I have no idea, but it's something to consider. It's funny that, that you come out of that and you, and the person's shoes that you are wondering what you would do in, in the, the filmmakers filmmaker. rather than <laughs> any of the participants but you know fair enough i think i agree i think that it's a film that, that that people should check out and one way or another whether it's the filmmaker or the characters you'll have a debate as to what was the appropriate course of action or how you would respond right but you know you know what i actually want to say one more thing um what I didn't like about the movie was the dialogue from the actual prank phone caller because I I don't know what exactly happened in in the actual real case and I'm not exactly sure what the guy said to the people in reality but I just found a lot of the dialogue just didn't ring true because I was just like even like the stupidest person would know that there's something wrong like um I mean like take the money or what was it take her clothes and put it in the bag and put it in the in seat of your car Right. Except again, that that actually happened. You know what I mean? Doble, uh, he was smart in sticking very, very. That's that's again why I didn't know how much credit to give him for this film because I think it is very, very effective. But I think it hews so closely to what actually happened that I mean, sure, I give him credit for 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 dramatizing it in a way that is reasonably credible. But I think he had such compelling material to work with that it it was. Mm, almost harder to screw that up you know it's such a compelling story it's one of those stranger than fiction things that is just uh really you know perfect for 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 dramatizing that I, i'm not sure uh, and again i think the hard things are writing the dialogue for the guy on the phone so yeah i would agree with you that uh where he actually sort of had to really set his mind to making it very credible uh, I, I don't know that it always holds up 100%, but but in general, I thought, yeah. But th that goes back to Simon's criticism or point where he was like, would this beat work better as a documentary? I think right. that if he wants to stick so closely to what actually happened in those events and that dialogue, yeah, it would have worked better as a documentary. And I think because he didn't do a documentary, he should make it a little bit more believable because what happens is when us, the audience, is watching the movie – we start getting preoccupied on the plausibility of like their reactions and how these people like act and whatnot. And so it kind of like takes you away from the movie because you're so busy, you know, looking over at your friend and be like, come on, seriously? It's taking well, out it's, of the movie. It's funny because when we were talking about uh, sort of having a spoiler warning before this film, I almost think that this is one film 
where you're better off going out and reading up on the actual incident um, so you know exactly what did happen. And then when you go to the film, you, you, you see it sort of like filled in for you. It's, it's kind of giving you the mindsets of what these people were. Like, I feel like it's almost a benefit to go in with the facts and then go in and see a representation of kind of like the psychological mechanisms that allowed those facts to come about. Um, which is unusual, but I think in this case you benefit from it in a way. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, the movie's called Compliance. Clearly, it is a conversation starter. We uh, we went on about that for quite a while. You are listening to Sound on Sight. We'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> 